0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Kent. If we hadn't had the chance to meet before, I'm one of the pastors here as well. Uh, if you'll uh, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, If you are brand new to our church, first off, welcome. Thanks for stopping by today. Um, For you to know, we are about six weeks into a series where we're just walking straight through the book of Matthew in the Bible. We are also now about three weeks into something called the Sermon on the Mount, which, if you're unfamiliar, is one of Jesus' most famous, most well-known teachings about what he calls the kingdom of God, which we've discussed a little bit in this series. And in these teachings, in what we're going to read about really for the next month or two as a church at least, Jesus just talks about what life should look like for followers of Jesus on planet Earth. What should we be about What what types of things should we do? What types of things should we be involved in if we call ourselves followers of Jesus? And the passage that we're going to cover today is actually a really pivotal one. Because today, in today's passage, Jesus lays a foundation for really what we will unpack for the remainder of his Sermon on the Mount. Which means everything we'll talk about really from now until mid-November or so as a church is just working out the implications of what Jesus is going to say in the passage today. And to help us sort of wrap our minds around what is said today. Obviously, it's really important that we get what Jesus says today so that we understand what he's about to say for the next several weeks. Uh, what I want us to do is sort of start off with two broad questions for us to think on. I, I think these questions sort of frame up what Jesus is trying to get at in this story in this passage, and and they get us in a similar brain space as him to start off with. So two questions I want you to consider with me. First, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? Second question is, how good is good enough? What does it mean to be a good person, and how good is good enough? First, what does it mean to be a good person Every single person who has ever lived, whether they realize it or not, has a functional answer to that question. Follower of Jesus or not, religious or not religious, the Republican Party has an answer to that question. The Democratic Party has an answer to that question. Younger people have an answer to it. Older people have an answer to it. People in Alabama have an answer to it, which is shocking to me. Because I was raised as a Tennessee fan to believe that there aren't any good people in Alabama. But there are, and they have answers to this question, what makes a good person? The reality is that all of us do. We all have a functional answer to that question. And we also, to get into the second question, we have certain measurements in our minds for how good is good enough. We have people and types of people that do and don't make the cut in our brains. There are varying levels of whatever definition of goodness we happen to operate by, and we have a tendency to approve of the people that measure up and to disapprove of the people who don't, or bare minimum, just look down our noses at them from time to time, right? Every single one of us does this. Even the person out there who says, well, I don't think there is an objective measurement of goodness in the world, and I think we all just have to decide what goodness is for ourselves. Even by saying that, you're doing the thing you're claiming not to do. Effectively, what you're saying is that a good person is someone who doesn't impose their definition of goodness on other people. So you're still doing it. You're still saying that there is such thing as a good person and that on some level we should all strive to be that. No matter who you are, no matter what your belief system, we all have functional answers to those questions. And you should know that you operate out of those answers on a regular basis. You'd be surprised by how many of the decisions you make on a day-to-day level actually involve you drawing on your functional answers to those questions, your definition of what a good person is. So we go about romantic relationships like we imagine a good person would go about romantic relationships. We do our jobs every day at work. We do our jobs like we imagine a good person would do our jobs, or at least when the boss is looking, right? We spend and save and budget our money like we imagine a good person would do all of those things. We draw on this answer of what makes a good person on a regular basis far more often than we realize because a lot of the time we're doing it subconsciously. But suffice it to say, your answers to those questions about what makes a good person and how good is good enough are absolutely central to how you go about your life, whether you realize that or not. And I bring all of that up in part because people in Jesus' day and age also had functional answers to those questions. For at least a lot of them, a good person was someone who adhered to something called the law. Now, that wasn't just any law, but rather the law found in the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some things you learned in Bible drill growing up just never go away. So that's the five books that the law is found in. And in those five books, you will find 613 commands in total. I know. 613. You've probably heard of the first 10. They're called the 10 commandments, but then there are 603 more. And they cover everything from how you worship, to how you bathe, to how you treat your neighbor, to how you care for the poor and the oppressed in your society. And a good person, at least in the average Jewish person's mind at this time, was someone who lived in obedience to 613 commands in the Old Testament, or at least relative obedience to those commands. That made you, to borrow their term, righteous. It made you a good person. And their answer to the second question, how good is good enough, would be that you had to at least be more righteous than a group of people called tax collectors and sinners. This was a common expression in their day. So tax collectors were the political traitors of the day, those who sold out their fellow countrymen to work for the oppressive occupying government. And sinners were people who lived obviously externally sinful lifestyles. So sex workers, prostitutes, thieves, people like that. So this category of people called tax collectors and sinners, they were decidedly unrighteous. So if you wanted to be considered to be a good person in that day, it was thought that you had to at least do better than they were doing morally. That was sort of the bare minimum. So it helps me a little bit to plot this out visually. I don't know about you, I'm a visual learner. This might confuse you more than it helps. If so, feel free to disregard it. But for me, it helps to visualize it with something like this. So we sort of have a chart. This was how the average Jewish person at the time thought about the world. If you wanted to be righteous, you had to at least do better than the sinners and tax collectors at the bottom. They were under what we might call the threshold of righteousness, which side note, would be an awesome 80's band name. But that's the threshold of righteousness. Sinners and tax collectors were under that threshold. So you had to at least do better than them. Most people operated above that in a broad category that we might call law-observant Jews. This was sort of where most people wanted to be, was somewhere in this broad category. And at the very top of the chart, at the very pinnacle of righteousness, was a group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. These were people who studied and read the law for a living. And so it was just assumed that they had obedience to the law pretty much on lock. This more or less was how the average first century Jewish man or woman kind of viewed the world of righteousness. And I show you all of that so that you can fully understand here in a bit how Jesus in this passage is about to blow all of that up. He's about to turn the whole thing on its head entirely. Jesus shows up on the scene and completely interrupts and transforms this entire worldview entirely. And in the process, he gives us his own definition of what it means to be a good person, what it means to be righteous. So let's take a look and see how he does that. Start with me in Matthew 5, verse 17. So this is Jesus talking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. The law we already defined 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And then the prophets were the people in Israel's history who were sent in order to turn people's hearts back to the law, in order to call them back to obedience to the law. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish either of those things. Now, that's an interesting way for him to start his talk, right? Because for Jesus to tell people not to think something would seem to imply what? That they might be inclined to think that, right? That, that people might think Jesus had come to do away with the law. So if I, if I stood up here this morning and I said to you guys, I started my teaching by going, do not think that I have stolen money from the church. <laughs> what are you guys gonna think? That would seem to indicate that I think something I've done might look like I have stolen money from the church, I haven't done that. So genuinely do not think that. But if I started that way, you would think something was up, right? So Jesus starts off by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Do not think that that's what I've come to do. And for Jesus to say this means that he suspects some people might think he is doing away with those things. And if you read through the Gospels, the other accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, sure enough, you'll actually come across quite a few times in his life where he was accused of breaking or violating or disregarding the Old Testament law. Jesus approaches things like the Sabbath differently from how his contemporaries did. He approaches purity laws and regulations differently than how people at his time did. He does things in his life at times that seem like he is disregarding the Old Testament law. But Jesus here wants to clarify that potential misunderstanding of who he is and what he does. Jesus says that is not the nature of my relationship to the law and the prophets. That's not what I've come to do at all. I haven't come to tear it all down, but rather to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, at the end of our teaching, we're going to come back around to that idea of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, because that is massively important, not just to how we understand this passage, but how we understand the entire Bible. So we're going to circle back around to that. Before we do that, though, I just want you to see how emphatic Jesus gets about him not coming to abolish the law and the prophets. So continue with me in our passage in verse 18. He says, not a single iota or dot of the law will pass away from it. So brief Bible nerd alert just to give you a heads up on that. But I think this does really help us to see how insistent Jesus is being here. So most literally, Jesus says, not a jot of or a tittle will pass from the law. I wanted to be very careful how I said that second word so as to not have to fire myself. Not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law. So a jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It was tiny, it would look something like an apostrophe to us. And a tittle is a mark even smaller than a jot. It was a pin stroke that distinguishes one Hebrew letter from the next. So Jesus is saying not even the tiniest detail of the law will be tossed aside. Not a bit of it. I did not show up on the scene to do away with the slightest detail of the law and the prophets. They are still our guide to describe for us what a righteous life, what a good life looks like. And therefore, Jesus says, anybody who says to people, oh, don't worry about the law. It's not a big deal. You don't have to concern yourself with that at all. Jesus says that person will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anybody who does them, anybody who lives out a life of obedience to the law and teaches other people to do the same, that person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So these are really strong words. But in case they weren't strong enough, next, Jesus just goes in for the kill. Look with me at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want us to spend a good bit of time on that last verse, verse 20. Because in many ways, that's what this whole passage has been building up to. Right, Jesus is saying that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, God's way of doing things in the world, your righteousness will have to be greater. It will have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think this verse helps us see precisely how different Jesus's view of goodness and righteousness was from how most people in his day thought about it. So to help you see just how different it is, let's look back at our previous chart from earlier. That's how most people viewed the world. This is what Jesus says effectively. So he says, it's not the sinners and the tax collectors that you have to do better than. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Now remember, those people were on the top of the chart earlier. They were seen as the pinnacle, the crowning achievement of righteousness, and Jesus just made them the baseline of righteousness, or righteousness. To be technically correct, not even the baseline. He made them below the baseline, right? That's quite a different way of looking at the world. So a couple things worth noting here. First, and and please don't miss this, Jesus is implying here that the Pharisees and the scribes will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That they won't enter it. They're out, in other words. By saying that kingdom righteousness must exceed theirs, Jesus is implying that theirs was not good enough. Their righteousness wasn't good enough. That was a bold statement to make back in the day. Imagine someone coming up to one of us today and saying, Yeah, unless you're a better person than Mother Teresa, there's no way you're getting into heaven. Sorry. It's a bold statement. The Pharisees were seen as the most righteous, the most moral, the most upright, and here Jesus says, yeah, you're at least going to have to do better than them. Which second, if you're paying attention, should make you ask the question, what in the world about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees wasn't good enough for the kingdom? In what universe was their goodness not good enough? What about it was lacking exactly? Well, I think one good place to answer that is Matthew 23. We could probably go to a lot of places in the Bible to answer that question, but I think one of the most obvious is in Matthew 23. So we'll put this on the screen, but in the, in the couple verses that we're about to read, I think Jesus actually clues us into what was so insufficient about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So take a look with me at Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Here's what he says to the scribes and Pharisees there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also, and make sure you hear this next part, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I think that last sentence there tells us a lot about the scribes and the Pharisees and particularly about their righteousness. It says, outwardly, they appeared righteous. Anybody at that time would have looked at them and gone, yes, they are the example of a righteous life. They appeared righteous, but really they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness, of course, being the polar opposite of the image that they presented to other people. So here was the problem with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and this is important. Their righteousness was only skin deep. Their righteousness was only skin deep. It was an act. The the scribes and the Pharisees only appeared to be good people, but their goodness, their righteousness had no staying power. It had no real lasting impact at all. They were only as righteous as they had to be to fool the people around them. If that's not a word for some of us in the Bible Belt, I don't know what is. That was where it stopped for the Pharisees and the scribes. And so it would appear that what Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, your goodness will have to be more than just skin deep. You will have to be marked by something more than just apparent obedience to the law. Jesus, in other words, is not trying to create a group of people who look one way on the surface and look completely different behind closed doors. He is not interested in hypocrisy. There's a guy named Dallas Willard whose book on the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of my favorites. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he put it this way, and I found this language really helpful to understand what's happening in this passage. Dallas Willard said that the law is not the source of righteousness, it is the course of righteousness. It's not the source of righteousness, it's the course of righteousness. It rhymes, and that's how you know that it's true, right? (laughs) But the law was meant to be the course, not the source of righteousness. So here's what that means. The core problem of the scribes and the Pharisees was that they saw the law as how they became righteous. They saw it as giving them the status of righteousness. So for them, the law was a box to check off. That's what it was for them. They would see a law on the books like do not steal. The law says do not steal and they would go, cool, I've never stolen anything so I'm officially righteous in that regard. No other need for further consideration. The end, I'm righteous. They saw it as the source of righteousness. To put it another way, they saw righteousness as a destination. But here's the thing. Righteousness wasn't meant to be a destination. It was meant to be a journey. It was meant to be a trajectory. The law was given to the people of God to point us in a direction towards the type of people God designed us to be all along. It was meant to give us a trajectory to run on, on a course towards righteousness. So think about it like this. Maybe this helps. Why do we have stop signs in our world? The simplest answer is so that people stop at them, right? But it's really more than that. That's correct, but at the same time, stop signs are there to help us realize that there are other people on the road that we happen to be traveling on. If there were never any stop signs, I don't know about you, but I would just continue about my way, I would never really notice that there were a bunch of other roads intersecting with the road that I was on. I would never notice that there were people who need to get onto or across the road that I'm driving on. I would never notice that there are people who need to walk across the road that I'm driving on. A stop sign is a command, to be sure, But it's also a prompt to consider things that we probably wouldn't have considered if it weren't for that stop sign being there. Does that make sense? So apply that same thinking to the law that we find in the Old Testament. When we hear the law, when I hear the law say, do not steal, it does in fact mean do not steal. And if I steal, I am guilty of breaking it. But here's what that law should also do in us if we're kingdom people. It should make us stop and think about the type of posture that would lead to stealing things from other people. So what things might that be? Well, for starters, do not steal might be inviting me to consider that not everything in the world belongs to me. It might be inviting me to realize that life is not all about me and therefore not everything I see and like should be mine. It could also be inviting me to remember that to use Jesus' own words in the Gospels, life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions, that having all the stuff that I want to have does not actually lead me to a better, more full life as a result of having it. It's also likely inviting me to consider that my actions have consequences, That taking something I want, that acting selfishly and out of greed means that other people don't have what they need now. That my actions have consequences. And we could go on, right? But there are all sorts of things that the command, do not steal, can actually help us think about, can actually help us to process as a result of the command. But here's what I want you to see. If you only see righteousness as a destination, like the scribes and Pharisees did, you will likely miss that entire purpose of the law. If you just think, okay, the law says not to steal, Bible says not to steal, I haven't stolen anything, so check, I'm righteous. If you do that, you could technically be in obedience to the law and yet simultaneously miss the entire point of the law. You could never steal a single thing and still think everything you come across should belong to you. You could still be envying people that have more than you. You could never steal a single thing your entire life and yet still believe and operate as if life consists in the abundance of your possessions. You can never steal a single thing in your life and still not learn that your actions have consequences, that your greed and selfishness actually impact other people in substantial ways. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees had become experts in doing, technically obeying the law and yet simultaneously missing the entire point of the law. They were doing the equivalent of coming to a complete stop at the stop sign, like not even a rolling stop, a complete stop at the stop sign, and then plowing into the person that was supposed to go in front of them. In fact, Jesus criticizes them a few times for doing almost exactly that. And Jesus is saying that that type of surface-level obedience, that type of lip service, technical obedience to the law, Will not be sufficient in the kingdom of God. That is not what his kingdom is about. He is not trying to create a kingdom of people who technically obey the law and yet miss its entire purpose to begin with. That's not what Jesus' kingdom is about. But when you see the law correctly, when you see the law and the prophets the way that Jesus saw the law and the prophets, it actually sets you on a trajectory, on a course towards righteousness, towards what goodness truly is. It sets you on a path towards the type of human being that God created us all to be, and that in turn will create in you a deeper, better-than-surface-level righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So, Let's think a bit about how this might all play out in our society today. That's the concept. Let's try to bring it into modern day just a little bit and see what it looks like. Because while it might look different for us in our day-to-day lives, I think there are times where we are actually guilty of doing the very same thing that the scribes and the Pharisees did, just in slightly different ways. Let me try to give you a few examples of how this might look to do it wrongly and to do it correctly. So let's start with an example straight out of the Old Testament, an Old Testament law referred to as the tithe. If you're unfamiliar, there's an Old Testament principle called the tithe, where God's people were to give the first 10% of their income to be used for God's purposes in their world. So 10% right off the top goes to the kingdom. But the scriptures are actually very clear about the fact that the reason we should do that, the reason we should participate in the tithe as God's people, is because it's a simple reminder of the fact that all of our money and all of our resources belongs to God in the first place. That's what it was meant to communicate. That's what it was meant to train us to believe, that he provides all of our resources, that he provides us with a means to make income in the first place, so it's a no-brainer that I would at least give 10% at the beginning right back to him explicitly. But here's the reality about that law. You can give 10% of your money to God all the time and still be operating as if your money and your resources don't belong to God in the first place. You, You can faithfully tithe your whole life. I could probably give half of my income back to God and still be operating as if my money and my resources actually belong to me and God doesn't get to say what I do with them you can faithfully tithe your entire life and still not be honoring God with your money. So what if instead, instead of approaching it that way as sort of a destination, what if you let the tithe start you out on a trajectory of honoring God with all of your money? What if on the first of each month, before you paid any other bills, before you paid for anything else, What if you sat down and said, all right, 10% is going to the kingdom of God. I'm going to go ahead and cut that check, make that transaction, whatever it is. But 10% is going directly to the kingdom of God. But at the same time, I know that's just a start. So I'm going to send that money off to be sure, but I'm also going to be on the lookout all month for the other ways that the Holy Spirit might be inviting me to leverage all of my resources for the kingdom of God in some way. I'm going to be looking around constantly for other ways that God might want to make use of my money and my resources, and I'm actually going to let that take me on a trajectory towards righteousness. That is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. I'll give you another one, another example. This one's a New Testament law, so to speak. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, do not get drunk for that leads to debauchery. So essentially, the overuse and overconsumption of alcohol leads to all sorts of other unhelpful and wasteful and sometimes outright destructive behavior as a result, as anyone who has ever been drunk can attest to. You can end up making a fool of yourself, misrepresenting Jesus, making really unhealthy des- decisions about who you sleep with and sexual expression, all sorts of things that can happen when you get drunk off of wine or any other type of alcohol. That's what this passage is saying. So therefore it says, do not get drunk. But let's say you're completely on board with the do not get drunk thing. Maybe you're straight edge, maybe you're a complete teetotaler, maybe you abstain from alcohol entirely, or maybe you just have great self-control. And so you're able to go out with friends and even when they get drunk, you're able to just have one or two and be good with it. And that's not an issue for you at all. You hardly ever get drunk at all. But here's the reality with this one. You can never get drunk at all in your life and still participate in the type of behavior that this passage warns against. You can be entirely sober all the time and yet still make all the bad decisions of people who are not sober. You can live in technical obedience to the law and yet miss the entire point of the law. But what if instead... You let that law, do not get drunk, point you on a trajectory towards an entirely different kind of life. A life where you live for something bigger than just fun weekend after fun weekend. A life where you take sexual integrity seriously, not because you're a prude, not because you're self-righteous, but because you have a crazy high view of sex formed by what the scriptures teach sex is actually for. What if you gained the reputation around your friends who regularly get drunk, not just for being that guy or that girl that doesn't get drunk when they go out with us, but rather that guy or that girl that lives an entirely different life that I wish I knew how to live. That is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So I'll just give you one more. Another New Testament law is that if we are followers of Jesus, we should prioritize attending church gatherings, basically what we're doing right here. That's Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to reference it on your own time. It says that we should not give up the habit of meeting together as God's people. Now, the fact that you're here right now, and that a lot of you are here more often than you're not here, means that you have technically fulfilled that requirement in the New Testament. But remember, righteousness is not a destination. It's a journey. So the reason that the scriptures instruct us not to give up the habit of meeting together is because these types of gatherings are one way that we show our commitment to one another as God's people. So if you're here every single Sunday, but the rest of the week you don't even think about any of the other people who are a part of this community, you've still missed the point. If you're here every single Sunday, but you take little to no interest in contributing to the other lives and discipleship of the people who are here, you've missed the point of that command in the New Testament. If your attitude is, okay, I'll show up up on Sundays, I like Sundays, but then I'm pretty much done with these people for the rest of my week until the next Sunday. That means you have technically obeyed the law and yet simultaneously missed the entire point of the law. But here, once again, what if you let your attendance at these gatherings on Sundays put you on a trajectory of integrating your life with other followers of Jesus throughout the week? What if every Sunday when you walk in, you use this time, this setting as a reminder to pray for the other people who show up here too? What if every Sunday you made it your goal to seek out and encourage two people in this room with the truth of who God is and who they are in light of who God is? What if each Sunday as you sit and listen to this teaching, what if you were thinking not only how does this apply to me and help me, but also how might this be helpful to this other person in my life group? How might this be helpful to the other person in my life? And how can I help them with what I learned this week? That would be a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So are you seeing how this works? When we understand the true purpose of the law, whether that's Old Testament law or New Testament law, we allow them to be far more than just boxes that we check. We allow them to put us on a trajectory towards becoming the types of human beings that God created us to be in the first place. We allow them to be our guide on the journey towards true righteousness. So once you understand all of this, you you start to see how it wouldn't even make sense for Jesus to be abolishing the law and the prophets. He, He didn't show up to do away with the type of righteousness that they point us to. He didn't come to do away with the type of life that the law and the prophets described. He came to live the type of life that they described. When Jesus says that he fulfills the law, he means that he came to be the type of person that the law and the prophets were trying to create in us all along. He came to display, to put on display the types of lives that they described for us. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus did that, he fulfilled the law, for at least two reasons. First, he did it so that we could have a living, breathing example of the types of people we are called to be. So that we wouldn't just know the types of things that the law describes, but we would actually see what a life like that looks like. That's the first reason. But also, number two, and this is crazy important for you to get, he also came to fulfill the law so that his own righteousness could stand in our place before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only paved the way for us to learn how to become righteous people, he actually made us righteous in the Father's eyes to begin with. So now when the Father looks at you and I, if we are in Jesus, he doesn't see us as people who are just trying their best to be righteous and miserably failing a lot of the time. Because let's be honest, that's what it looks like a lot of the time for us. He doesn't see us that way. He sees us as already righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross. That's the starting point for followers of Jesus. We are given that status through Jesus' work on the cross, and then we are given the ability through the Holy Spirit to become more and more like that practically over time. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to start from that starting point so the truth about true righteousness true goodness being a good person is that goodness can really only come as a byproduct if your goal in life is just to be a good person if that's the thing that you're aiming for at all times if you're just trying to be a good person you will either end up crushed exhausted or faking it those are the options But when you come to know and as you get to know Jesus and who he truly is, what will happen is that righteousness and goodness will begin to take root in your life more and more as a byproduct of that. By getting to know Jesus, you will see and you will discover what the true purpose of the law was to begin with. You will see and become the very righteousness that the law and the prophets described for us. So my prayer is that we as a community of Jesus would have an unwavering commitment to becoming Jesus people and through that that he would make us into good people by his spirit. Listen, our world needs good people right now. I don't know if you've ever turned on the news at all, but our world needs good people right now. But it doesn't need people that pretend to be good. That's part of the problem, actually. On both sides of the political aisle, the problem is that a lot of people are willing to pretend to be good at the expense of their own souls. And so my prayer for us as a community of people is that our aim, our goal would be to become Jesus people and that in turn that would generate in us true goodness that is a blessing to the world around us. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we thank you first of all for Jesus. We thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices trying to prove our goodness to you. But God, rather that um, you have sent a savior to die in our place for our sins and to impart to us righteousness as a starting point. God, there's nothing for us to prove to you that has not already been proved on the cross. And so God, God, I pray that that would be where we start that we would rest in that, that we would find peace in that, that we would find hope there. And God, that once we grasp that, we would be propelled and motivated onto the course and the journey that is righteousness, that is becoming the type of people that our world needs. So God, it's, it's impossible for me to know where everybody's at in this room. Um, no doubt we probably have a lot of people um, that are crushed and exhausted by trying to do the right thing and just finding in them this gravitational pull against it. God, there are those in the room that um, are just very convinced of their own unrighteousness. And they feel like because of that, you will never love them. You will never care for them. You will never want them. And so, God, I pray that those things would be exposed for the lies that they are. that That is not how you operate. That's not how you view your children. That you desire us, you want us, you set your love upon us before the foundations of this world. And you delight in us as your sons and daughters. And so for some of us, I, I know we just need to hear that. And God, for others of us, no doubt, um, if we were just completely honest, our lives look a lot like the scribes and the Pharisees where we have everyone completely fooled around us into thinking that we're good people, but the things that we do behind closed doors, the things that we think in the recesses of our mind about other people, if, if there was just a projector reel set up of what actually goes on in our heart, people would be shocked because it would be so different from the image that we project. And so for this morning, I I pray for those people. God, I pray for a release. A release from the act that is fake righteousness. That you would provide for them someone to confess to, someone to confide in who can help them shrink the gap between who they present to the world and who they actually are. And so God, if that's what needs to happen, I pray that your spirit would do that in our midst. And God, for all of us, would you set our attention, would you set our gaze on the cross of Jesus that makes us righteous and helps us walk the trajectory, the course, the journey that is righteousness in return. So God, we ask for your help. We ask for your spirit to move in our midst God, I ask that we wouldn't put off conversations that could be had right now. I pray that even if we need to, if we would just text somebody right now and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something this week, don't let me forget. God, I pray we wouldn't put it off. I pray that we would come face to face with the cross, through it, that we would receive true righteousness and that we would be motivated to walk in righteousness in our day-to-day lives and that you would get the glory for it. We ask this in your name, amen.